Okay, just yeah, just like this, right? Do you want it funny or not funny? We're gonna go whatever. Like, whatever are we direction. trying to entertain or inform? Uh, both. So okay. we're just gonna. Okay. All right. You don't, want a, you don't want a boring podcast. No, fuck no. Are you swearing? Right. Swearing? Absolutely. Good? All right, right, right. All right. Welcome to Forensic Psych Podcast once again, ladies and gentlemen. Um, thanks for being uh, with us at Forensic Psych Podcast today. Um, today we have as our guest, uh, Dimitri Zeligman. Um, he is a licensed clinical social worker. He's got extensive background in dealing with the forensic population, um, in a forensic setting. So we're looking forward to talk with him. Um, so if you go to work behind the Sally port, stay tuned. Dimitri, thanks for being here. How are you doing? Excellent. How are you, Sam? Good, good. Um, should we just jump right into the interview questions or, or should we talk about that mysterious accent that we're picking up on in your voice? You didn't even know. I don't think anybody even heard it yet. Oh, okay. Well, I haven't had the, you know, usually it comes out after a couple of drinks. So. All right. Well, we should have some drinks. We should, we, we should be doing some day drinking. Dimitri, I ladies. I saw him from last night, Sam. Everybody, Dimitri's got a Red Bull in his hand. I've got a glass of water in my It's hand. actually a natural, uh. Natural Red Bull. Should we do a plug for Young Living? Sure, sure. Excellent. Young Living, Lime, Wolfberry, all sorts of a sparkling <sighs> beverage. Okay. It'll give you wings. Fascinating. All right. We're going to keep going. Where's the, What's the accent, Dimitri? Where's it from? I am originally from Belarus. Oh. So I grew up in the, in the communist regime. Okay. Over, you know, on the other side of the wall. Okay. Before and during uh, it going down. Yeah, yeah. That yeah, was a good well, time. Great well, childhood. Was it? Yeah, is it, is, fun. Okay. Is there sarcasm in that, or is it, are you being for real? No, I'm being for real. So All mean, right. What'd you like about it? What was so, you said it was a great childhood. What was I it? I mean, I think just like just like probably in, uh, your experience growing up in California, uh, rules were different back then. You know, we roamed the streets, uh, wild, getting in trouble, and okay, kind of cool. Um, yeah, good times. All right, a little freer. A little a lot fr- freer. And a more innocent time, everybody. A more innocent time. All yes. right. Cool. All right. Fun. Um, so was it always overcast there? Not as much as, no. No. It was nice. It was a good Boston, Boston kind of. Okay. So not too depressing, not not too much seasonal affective disorder there? No, not there. Okay. You you weren't allowed to be depressed. Is that, is that what you're saying? I don't know. I haven't really touched that. Yeah. The state didn't, the state didn't allow. When it comes to suicide rates, I don't know if you look at suicide rates, then I guess maybe people were a little depressed. Okay. But that might have something to do with their, you know, the alcohol consumption too. What was the, what is the alcohol? Will you hear about this, you know, in the news? What, what's the alcohol consumption rates for, for Belarus anyways? I, know. I don't know the rates for alcohol consumption. I know that suicide rates are significantly higher, whereas in the United States, I think generally it's like 16 per 10,000 in the former Soviet republics of that, in that region, kind of bounces between 62 to 80s, okay. um, significantly higher than well, what do you? What would you say are the like some contributing factors to that? You know, I have some theories, but let's uh, hear them. This is a, this is a show of opinions. Let's hear your opinion. Okay. Um, you know, I think it was a difficult difficult adjustment for a lot of. Uh, well, first of all, you're talking about a whole popu- traumatized population, right? You, world War II has really hit hard that area of the world, and you have a couple of generations that were. Uh, they're still kind of living the aftermath of the World War II, everything, and it's evident in the streets. It's evident in the, you know, the politics of the region. Um, it, it's fresh, and I, when you talk about the, you know, post-secondary trauma, yeah. uh, it's it kind of affects the whole population, and a, a big uh, coping skill of the whole region, I think, was alcohol. Okay. Um, 
you know, now there's a lot of different kinds of addiction, opium epidemic. I don't know if you've heard about like the crocodile, like, yeah, crocodile coming from over there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I kind of, okay. That's fair, man. That's fair. Um, how did that look? Okay. So how did, how did, how did that trauma background present? If you could, if you could kind of, if you could kind of paint one picture for us, how did that trauma back, how did that trauma background or trauma history present for, uh, one of the communities there? Like you said that their coping skill was alcoholism, possibly. Well, I'll give you an example of my neighborhood growing up. Okay. Okay. It was, uh, you know, so communist regime, we have big nine story buildings, kind of, uh, I think it was during the same period of time that a lot of, um, it was, it was built during the same period of time that a lot of, um, what's the word? Uh, was it, um, Perestroika? Like no. Tescadero was the original col- colony, right? Okay. And it was, uh, like there's a lot of colonies that are based on the, um, uh, say something. Based on what? Okay, pause it, pause it, pause it. Well, I, I can't, can't, I can't, well, it. I can just edit it out. Okay, so the, um, like a perfect, perfect society kind of a thing. Oh, utopia. Utopia, yes. So it's based on these, oh, you know, utopic you saying, ideas. Sir, and, you, uh, did the Soviet Union, did they try and colonize these Balkan, Balkan states? Did they try, and, did they, are you saying that they essentially colonized these Balkan states and just try and brought like Soviet tradition, or Russian tradition and values and... Boom, and put them in the and put them into that community, superimpose them on that community. Well, it was communist regime, so they could do whatever they want, right? So I think they they build these neighborhoods based on you know different um, criteria, socioeconomic status. Like we worked where I lived was it was called uh, the working class. You know, the, it was sure. a neighborhood for the working class. So what it looks like is uh, uh, three or four huge nine-story buildings uh, put in a kind of a square with a big playground essentially in the middle. Uh, area for the the older folks to kind of hang out. Area for the kids to play. There's a kinder care, you know, like a kindergarten attached to this huge area. So it's very convenient, very like a very well planned neighborhood. Okay. Like like something you'd see them them marketing commercially here now, maybe. Maybe yeah, yeah. kind of yeah. It follows the trends of where California is going with all the <laughs> the communities, the townhouse communities, yeah. with the pools and the gyms. Uh, in a way that we did have the big um, the gymnastic set and the basketball courts and all that within very convenient where everybody lived and that's where most of the hangout was so growing up all the kids uh, were hanging out right in the middle with all the old you know i call them old ladies right the yeah babushka the, gra- the grandma's sitting around in a circle chatting about the good old times and most of that chatter was about world war ii okay. they would you know point right you know right there where we played um and they would come up they would uh tell us stories about how the Nazis would do mass executions. It was right there where we played, and okay. you know that that kind of there's a lot of uh, people directly affected, a lot of mental health problems, and okay. it, it was right there in your face. That's and I'm sense. third generation, right? Like my grandparents lived through the war, okay. so so you got to hear that first firsthand from them, firsthand through them from them. But um, the way it kind of lives in the you know in the walls, like we had the the Nazis actually. The uh, what do you call them? The prisoners of war. The German prisoners of war actually rebuilt our neighborhood. So we had a mine going off in one of the walls of the buildings it, while I was living wow. there. So it was, you know, it was, uh, um, wait, say say that one more time. <laughs> you had a mine. So they they put a a landmine a landmine inside of one of the walls, and it was uh, what was didn't the... it didn't go off until I guess it deteriorated enough. 
you know, it blew 60 up. years later, it did blow up. Yeah. It, was it a controlled explosion or was no, it like no, a no, it, it, no, people were living there for 40 years, so it just happened to blow up at that did it time. Kill, did it kill some people? I don't think so. I remember, you know, people talking about that it blew up, but I don't remember that anybody got hurt. Jesus. All right. That, okay, okay. Well, that'll get your A score up, won't it? Sorry, we got off the subject. No, no, no. Bit. This is the subject. This is good. This segues actually perfectly into our first interview question. Um, and before I ask it, um, we'll just we'll just kind of paint the picture that that we are going to be talking, spending some time today talking about um, trauma histories, um, A scores, if you want, um, and trauma informed care, which the, which is the direction that that forensic psychology is moving in. Um, I want to hear about your perspectives um, from a, from from as a clinician, as a as a clinical social worker. I want to hear about your perspectives. Um, uh, a lot of people that will be listening to this podcast are level of care staff, and and we want to know, we want to we want to get your perspective so we can appreciate it and see how that affects the way we interact with patients that we deal with on a day to day basis. So, having said that, we'll jump into the first question if that's okay. Sure. All right. What is your, Dimitri, what is your discipline and how would you describe what you do? So I'm a clinical social worker. Okay. Um, it's a very, very broad profession. Okay. Uh, depending on what, what area you work in, um, today I think we're going to focus on the forensic. So my background is mainly forensic and crisis. So the two are very interconnected. The, um, the, the cycle, I call it the, the cycle of a client having a crisis in the community, uh, the response that the community offers and the services that it offers to, the, to an individual in crisis and having a psychiatric condition or experiencing some kind of psychiatric issue in the community and how that leads to possibly, uh, and I think it's a kind of a systematic failure, that how that individual ends up in, let's say, a forensic hospital. Okay. Or even worse, a prison. And um, sorry, I got a little bit uh, off track. No, but so what I do, I kind of, my background is a little bit broad and I kind of uh, jumped around a little bit uh, professionally. I worked in community psychiatric response. So emergency psychiatric response in the community where we work uh, in collaboration with the uh, police departments and other agencies to respond to crisis in the community as it happens. And also, uh, kind of, then I have some experience working with the homeless individuals and, uh, the, of course, the forensic hospital. All right, so let's take it in that order. Crisis, forensic, homeless. Not that those are, not that those are, are dis- necessarily distinct, okay? Right. Let's talk about your experience as a, a clinical social worker in the crisis setting. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? Walk us through your day. So crisis, when we say crisis, um, we're talking about uh, acute psychiatric hospital and we're talking about community uh, crisis response. So I have experience in both. Uh, Which one do you want to talk about? First? Let's do the community. Okay. Because, community. Uh, you know, I think uh, acute psychiatric hospital, a lot of our listeners are probably more familiar with. Well, we're going to talk a lot more about that okay. later. So. Um, I, th- I get the feeling that this crisis, this crisis in the community, is sort of one of your passions. So I want to hear about that. It is. Uh, I think it's a, it's a real opportunity. You know, since we closed down all the the major state hospitals back in what was it the sixties? Nah, it was later than that. It was like the seventies, eighties, eighties. Yeah. So in the since all those, a lot of we lost a lot of forensic beds, 
And a lot of those, uh, a lot of the individuals that were would have uh, used those beds end up being treated in the community. Uh, in the community, the that the psychiatric condition manifests himself, manifests itself often leads to a crisis. So what that looks like, for example, okay, so we'll kind of backstep a little bit. So I would be in a, sitting in a call center and we get uh, calls all day from family members, from individuals experiencing crisis, okay. from What's various it? community so, agencies. So, so a guy, a guy so let's say a guy calls you yep. and he's in a crisis. What, is it, what, what, what would be a typical crisis for him? So usually if a person calls for themselves, it's usually they're having suicidal thoughts. They're not feeling safe with themselves. Uh, what do you do for them? We would, I would do a little bit of phone counseling, trying to determine the level of uh, risk okay. and set up a meeting for them. So within an hour, we would have a team of mental health professionals, uh, depending on the acuity and the risk level, it would either be a team of a uh, police officer and a mental health professional or two mental health professionals. Okay. And we'd go out and meet them at the, uh, at their door and, uh, address the crisis depending on, you know, what they need, whether right. it's setting them up with a crisis residence, whether it's uh, helping them get to the hospital, or whether it's setting up some kind of stabilization services in the community. Okay, so if I if I call you, I'm the guy that's that's in distress, and I call you and say, hey, I'm gonna, I can't take anymore, I'm, I'm gonna kill myself. This is the last phone call I'm gonna make on this earth. Mm -hmm. What do you what do you usually do? What, what does the law require that you do? In that kind of situation, though, that, that's a very high acuity yeah. situation. It sounds like this person has really considered suicide, has planned it, yeah. and in in that statement, I hear a lot of intent. Yeah. So that's they, a, they've got the, they got the gun on the table in front of them. Yeah. So that's an imminent situation. If I know there's a gun in the, involved, that's a police matter, regardless. Okay. So in that situation, it would just be uh, I would call the police and gather as much information as possible, try to find out where they are. We had a collaboration with the local police departments. We would ping their phone, okay, and um, and intervene that way. Okay, interesting, yeah. interesting. Okay, what if it's the family member mm -hmm. calls and they're worried about a loved one? You know, that's a very interesting. Um, uh, uh, it, so nowadays, there's a lot of negative publicity about the police encounters with the mentally ill. Okay. There's a lot of shootings and a lot of families are afraid to call the police when their family members are in crisis. That was one of the, I think that was the most important role. One of the, the, the most important factors or things that, we, that benefit that we provided the community. A lot of people and specifically certain communities, certain cultural groups are afraid to call the police because they believe the police is not on their side and they believe that the police are likely are going to hurt their loved ones. Okay. And so we offered kind of the alternative where two mental health professionals could come and work with the family, sometimes work with uh, communities. Um, and so in other they, states, they, and, they feel safer with that because they know you're not going to show up armed. Correct. Okay, you're gonna, yeah. However, you know, we, we assess the situation, each situation is different. If we know there's a gun involved, we would ask the family to remove it. And if we get enough kind of collaboration with the family, we might be able to intervene. If, um, but, uh, you know, in other situations, you, that's you, not an option. Are there, do you, are you legally required to do certain things if given something? If somebody says X, you are required legally to do Y. Is there stuff like that? I mean, as a social worker, we have some mandates, and I think you know, similar to 
other professionals who are mandatory reporters when it comes to sexual abuse, vulnerable. Sure, sure. I was thinking more in this in terms of when you're on the phone with somebody and mm-hmm. they're, they're they're talking about their crisis. Are you is there is there are there requirements legal requirements like something if somebody says X you have to do Y. We're we're a therapist. That's the beauty of having therapists in that role. Okay. We have uh, you know we're it's a it's a privileged conversation. You know in terms of legality. Uh, it's it's very much we're we're treating them we're treating the individual on the other line as a as a patient as a client as a so, um, so that's good to, that's good for people to know and hear because they don't I'm sure a lot of people don't don't make that don't make that association of if I call this is this is I'm talking to a therapist this is a privileged conversation right um, it's confidential it's, it's 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 a safer space than what they they may be yes but just like in the therapist's office if you tell your therapist that you have some intent you know killing yourself and the therapist determines that it's a high-risk situation we may have to involve the police or you know kind of doing bring in some involuntarily involuntary measures okay fair enough fair enough all right so we've talked about uh calling your calling the guy calling for himself we talked about the family calling for their loved one and um we're this is this is crisis in the community is there any is there any picture that you'd care to paint about um, uh, something that you something that you typically might see working in that situation. Uh, so a typical call, you know, let's say it's probably about half emotional distress mm-hmm. and thirty percent some kind of psychosis and okay. something in between for the rest. The twenty percent. All right. So, what do you do for them? What do you say? What's, uh, what's so, how's a conversation go with? with so, the usually with uh, you know with individuals that are having that are depressed, suicidal, we would go in there, would essentially offer a, a therapy session. Okay. And see 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 how it goes. How do you most, de- how did you de-escalate somebody like that? And wanted to hurt themselves. Well, uh, I think the most important thing. It's like uh, what's his name? Mar- Marilyn Manson said, uh, <laughs> the, the "I would singer? listen." Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, sure. Uh, yeah, allowing a person to really express what they're going through, and for somebody to listen and not be, you know, non judgmentally and offer support, genuine support. Isn't that isn't that isn't that amazing? When you verbalize thoughts, there's a, there's a catharsis that can happen, and it's it's. I think we've all seen that. Anybody that's worked in this field has seen this. When you verbalize thoughts, when you verbalize memories. Um, it can be very cathartic, and, and it, it, it can really it can really change uh, a situation for somebody. I've seen that in my in the work that I've done. I think that was pretty amazing. Absolutely, I think it's one of the most important things that we can do for a person is just to allow to listen. Yeah, good old therapeutic communication. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right, cool. Um, let's see. You want to talk about this anymore? Or should we go on to the next one? It's up to you. Okay. Well. We talked about crisis. Let's talk about forensic for a second. Let's talk about what what your day looks like in the forensic setting. Mm-hmm. So, in the forensic setting, uh, usually a social worker would work on a some kind of a unit, whether it's in a you know prison or hospital setting. In, in my case, it was a unit of forty two uh, individuals that were classified under one of the California uh, commitment codes, or okay. uh, you know the. Uh, so we worked with uh, mentally disordered offenders. Okay. We worked with uh, people that were found uh, 
not you guilty know, by reason of insanity. Not, not guilty by reason of insanity. It's an interesting old term, but we still use it because yeah. the legal system, you know, kind of doesn't, doesn't change very things. fast. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and we had a few uh, like uh, prisoners, people that were getting treatment while they were in prison. So okay, yeah. So my typical day would, you know, my unit had forty-two uh, individuals, and we usually would start with. Uh, Start the day by reviewing what happened while we were gone and see if there's any anything urgent that we have to address. Then we have a, a team meeting where a psychiatrist, psychologist, uh, nurse or uh, other usually unit supervisor and social worker. So we kind of uh, review those cases and we have the, the people, the patients uh, get uh, come in. And so every month we have to go through every patient and kind of address their concerns and, and what, determine their treatment plan. Okay. And what I was going to ask, what, what in, your, in your opinion, what gets accomplished during those meetings, that, that, that team meeting? Yeah, I think the, the most important thing is that everybody's on the same page and we come up with a plan. Uh, the big difference between having an individual with a mental, who's experiencing a mental uh, illness in a state hospital, in a, some kind of a forensic hospital, situation versus prison is that they're actually they're working towards recovery they're working towards uh, some kind of a safe discharge to the community uh, that that doesn't often happen in uh, prison settings okay fair enough so um, so let's see just to recap um, you focused on a team environment within uh, forensic um, hospitals and uh, and for folks working with folks that are incarcerated um, do you, we'll, we'll talk about the people that you worked with a little bit later but I, I want to talk about some, some more I want to talk about your motivations for a second because you described at the onset um, uh, of, of this discussion um, some very very a very unique set of of circum personal circumstances and I, I, I want to flesh out if we could how that informed your choice of profession okay mm -hmm. what do you think what do you think about your background about those experiences um, in growing up in Belarus and the experiences of people that you knew family members loved ones etc um, what about all that informed your choice of profession you know I think uh, so I immigrated to the United States when I was 11 and uh, had a kind of a difficult time adjusting and American schools are uh, kind of a can be unwelcoming. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, so in what way? You know, there, there's a lot of division here. There's a lot of diversity. There's a lot of uh, things that I wasn't exposed to before. Okay. Uh, politics, if you will, you know, you talk about prison politics. I had no idea what I was stepping into. Okay. And it took me, it, you know, it took me a while. And even when we, when I kind of figured it out, uh, ended up kind of hanging out with a very um, closed group, I guess. Uh, you know, mostly uh, Russian American individuals. Um, and uh, you know, I think I think that it definitely had something to do, you know, there with my choice of profession you know at first uh, out of out of college I, so I got my bachelor in sociology psychology really loved the sub the subjects really okay. uh, had a passion you know they say you're not uh, it was easy it just came in naturally I was really fascinated with the 
the concept of the human psyche and the how people behave in groups. And I think that kind of stems with my uh, struggle to figure out the the politics and how to adjust into the American school system and the American lifestyle. You're talking about trying to, to, to get in where you fit in? Trying to fit in, yeah. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, and uh, my first job out of, the, out of college was actually, well, after a couple of, like, uh, where I really set in on social work was after my job at a bank. Okay. So I said I was a personal banker at a major bank, and uh, I think I, it kind of... Dude, you felt must very superficial. I'm, so, I'm sorry. I got to stop you right there, man. You, it would, I did just see you in the shirt sleeves and the skinny ties, and you just it's such a tool. Gee, oh man, <laughs> totally, totally. But and, but I, and that's how I felt, and that's how I felt, and I think that's where it really drove it. I, I one day I just finally said I can't do it. Yeah. They wanted me to, I call it sell my soul, and eventually I had to do something what what I thought really resonated with me and that I felt was real. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, I, and this guy, one of the guys that one of my uh, clients actually at a bank was a psychology professor. And, um, and I, you know, set him down. I said, you know, I really want to work with people. I really like these subjects. What do you recommend? And he drew a huge kind of map for me. He's like, well, if you want to do this, this, and this, you'd be a psychologist. If you want to do, you know, medical, more medical, you'd be a psychiatrist. If you want to do this, you'd be a nurse. But if you want to work anywhere you want, you be a social worker. And knowing myself and knowing how hard it is for me to commit to a certain to one specific <laughs> field, I'm like, great, this this is for me. Oh, awesome, awesome. Okay, cool. So it was a, so it was a psychology professor. It was a psychology professor that's, that that's got me great. to social work. Yes, that is cool, man. No, that's really good. That's really. It's I I had a, I had good experiences with some of my professors. Um, uh, so if anybody out there is listening that that works at at a um, at a university or community college. Um, you 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 may not realize the the huge impact your day to day interactions are having with the people that you come that you come in contact with. But it, it's I, I, I think it's um it's really important to uh, to give props to those people uh, that that work in those settings because we've all been kind of positively influenced by them. I I, I think so. It's pretty important. absolutely. Um, okay. All right. So. The next question is, what did you do before this? But you just told us. Oh, All right, I'm cool. That's going out no, of no, no. This is good. This is good. You, I, well, this this sets up this sets up um, the background and the motivation and the draw for why you why you do what you do. So, in in ten words or less, why do you do what you do? Ten words or less. Ten words or less. Uh, well, I think the main thing is. I get bored doing anything else. Okay. Okay. Um, I really like what I do. I have a passion for what I do. You know, every time I get tired and it's easy to burn out in this profession. Yeah. Why is it I, easy to burn out? Uh, because it's a difficult population. What? 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 What, what do they do? That, what? What are they doing that make it so difficult? <laughs> you know, just in general, I think most of our, most of our, I think your listeners will be will. Don't have their don't, own idea. Don't, but, don't, don't cupcake right, this shit. Right. Just say it. Don't cupcake it. Just um, say it. What? I mean, you're you're dealing with people that are that have a lot of need. Okay. That have what does that a look lot like? Of, what does that look like if I'm standing in front of somebody that has a lot of need? What does that look like? Paint the picture. Interesting. What does it look um, like? Well, okay. So my job in general, right? Our our job in general. No, 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 is, no. no. <laughs> what is it? What is it? to do? Me, do us a favor. Yeah. yeah. And I'm asking you. This is a big ask. Do me a favor. 
what does it look like? Somebody's in front of you that has a lot of need. What does that look like? That person cannot function without a system of professionals around them. Okay. And Dude. what it takes for of these professionals, including myself, and it's a multidisciplinary team. It's always, you know, nurses, PCAs, in-home cares. It's whatever the setting. What it takes is to give a little bit of your soul to them. Okay. And that every time you, if you continue, it's your if your job for ten hours a day is to you know really give a little bit of your soul and genuinely care All and right. genuinely All right. I, I, help that person. I hear it that. It takes a little part I of hear, you. I hear what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I want to know what it looks like. I don't know what it looks like. What does it look like? To give give a little bit of your soul. What does that look like? So when I talk to a... And maybe we could back up to the first <laughs> question that didn't get answered. I have a lot of need. I'm a guy that has a lot of need. I'm sitting in front of yeah. you. What do I look like? Do I look you look like? like just like everyone else. I do. Yes, you do. Okay. Well, it, well then... then if I, if I look like everybody else, then how can you tell I have need? And I think that's the that's the big challenge of uh, catching those people, well, not catching, but uh, addressing those issues as they come up. Because I can tell you what that person looks like out on the street. Okay, do it, please. So I'll give you an example from please last week that one of my clients is uh, so you're gonna go ahead and and, ge- and generate a composite of what somebody a composite, might look like. What somebody might look like. Yeah. Yes, uh, that person might be an individual sitting on the side of the road, okay, in a wheelchair, okay, with a you know surrounded by empty cans of beer, okay. Uh, that person might be individual uh, sleeping in a uh, in a tent, okay, um, out under the under the river. Okay. That individual might be uh, buying drugs on a local corner, and we deal a lot. You know, I think the, the epidemic in this state is is horrific. We there's what? so much meth. Meth, meth. It's so not. It's not. It's not. It's not opioids. It's not fentanyl. It's not. Oh, it's definitely it's, opioids too. But I think it's, it, I'm dealing a lot more with uh, meth. It's it, it's easier to access meth. I think it's a level of functioning and the how the rapid deterioration and. Uh, it's the access. It's the the fact that people that are, in terms of co-occurring disorders, it's you know alcohol and meth seems to be okay. the the go-to. Okay. Um, I got. What you. else does that person look like? You know, in, in a in a forensic hospital, that person may be just a individual that is wearing you know some forensic scrubs. Okay. Uh, most of them are heavily medicated. Yeah. But for, that's, but, usually for a good reason. Yeah, but that's way later. That's way that's later. Way later yeah. So we thank you for paying, taking the time to paint that picture of what somebody in great need looks like. Because that's important, man. That's important for us to visualize that. Okay. So we've gotten somebody that we can see that, that we can do. We, we can see, oh, yeah, this person needs some help. This person needs some help. Now let's get back to you where you give them a little bit of your soul. Okay. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? What's that process look like? You know, I was talking to. Uh, individual one one day who kind of had the struggle and was able to um, I guess I would call it recovery but recovery is ongoing right yeah. recovery never stops right so he was homeless for five years I think and now he is housed and he's helping other individuals that are uh, homeless and according to him he said once a person is homeless for a year or two they lose this uh, the little piece the Every every piece of self dignity that that is needed that that's even they don't even have a spark 
to bring themselves up. You know, you know what I mean? No, I don't. So for him, he says the, the main thing is to give somebody a little bit of hope. And he says the, the people that are out there on the street and, you know, the, you know, a lot of people, all oh, the bombs, you know, they don't care. They don't want to work. Really, the conditions that they're living on under is, are just are horrific. Or, they're, yeah, sure. they're treated like shit. Sure. They consider themselves to be shit. And you, they've said that. Yes. They refer to themselves. I'm Jesus. I am a white piece of shit. I am a trash. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. And, um, that, that's just somebody said, uh, yeah, yeah, you, not yeah. to say that they're white or, you know, yeah, no, no, I got yeah, you. But... <laughs> that was something you, no, that was something you experienced. So you, yes. you really, and, uh, okay. and that's how people are addressing them too. And, uh, they're being spat on people throw things at them. Um, you know, oftentimes they live in conditions that are, you know, that they don't have access to medical treatment, they're sitting, sitting in their, in their own scabies and feces. I mean, I, I'm, I'm shocked at, I'm shocked that, you know, in, in this society that we just kind of allow it to happen. Why do we, why do we allow it to happen? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. What do you think we do? Question. What do you think? This is a show of opinions. What, in your opinion, why do we allow it to happen? So there's different schools, of, different uh, kind of schools of thought. And on, on one hand, we're preserving their right to self-determination. If a person doesn't want treatment, who are we to tell them that they should? Mm -hmm. On the other, what, um, at what point do we say that this person's uh, mental capacity is no longer... <laughs> at what point do we kind of take control... Um, you know, I think it all comes down to money. Uh, it's often cheaper to let that person just drink themselves on the side of the road, uh, to drink themselves to death. This, how does society have an obligation or man, explain this society. What's what obligation does society at writ large have to the folks who are for what, what re, one reason or another, you know, not, not unable to function. Mm -hmm. what, what, what do you think in your opinion what what you know it's an old question I think you know traditionally the those people were were helped by the by the church by a lot of uh, religious organizations and a lot of the even American American law stems from those policies okay um, you know the back back in the day they would have a what do they call them? The, French, the French asylums. They would okay. just kind of. I thought you were talking about English common law. That too, yeah. Okay. They, they kind of, you know, each. Uh, you know, in certain society, in certain cultures, even now, they, they don't have that infrastructure. And uh, oftentimes those people are just disposed of in one way or another. Uh, like, like, in, uh, okay. We'll come back to that. Go ahead. Sorry, yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt you. But, um, I mean, you know, it's uh, it comes down to humanity and okay. everybody's opinion. Oftentimes, it's easy to separate. Oh, those are just the you know the bums living on the side of the road. Those are just you know they're prisoners. They're scum. They're they don't deserve our pity or our empathy or sympathy. But you know, bottom line is a lot of the times, and these are the people that I work with, and I think that most of our listeners work with. It's a mental health condition. It affects some, you know. About 16% of the U.S. population is affected by a severe and persistent mental illness. Okay. Um, a lot of, you know, 1% of the population is, has some experience, some kind of psychosis-related condition. And with the current drug epidemic, that those rates are probably 
higher. Uh, so when a person is born with a condition, predisposed, predisposed condition, or, you know, do we have any obligation to help them if they don't have the means to help themselves? Mm -hmm. Well, and there's, 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 um, yeah. And, and now we get into, we, we get into having a mental illness versus criminal logic thinking. And, and when those, when those two things intersect, um, there's, there's case law that, that kind of has written history for us, I think. Um, all right, let's, let's, you want to move on to the next question? Sure. All right. All right. Cool. Um, let's see. Do, do, do. What's the state of uh, forensic psychiatric care or specifically in your field, the clinical social work that, that deals with a forensic population? What's, what's the state of of that field today what's the, what what condition is it in so right now in the state of california we'll say you know, the state of california okay. houses 40 percent of the national forensic population roughly okay the um that's a lot of people california is a wealthy state okay. uh you know we've had a surplus for the last uh, couple of years i think uh <laughs> yeah, yeah what, that's true uh, so what is the state we so we have a lot of people behind in a in a in a secure setting. It costs a lot of money. And yeah, it's, it's, do you remember any of those stats? I, I can't, now that you've mentioned it, I can't remember. You know, I think it depends on the setting. I mean, it's a lot cheaper to house somebody in a prison. I'm not, I'm not going to guess. Okay. I know, I know okay. it's, uh, you know, under a hundred thousand for prison over, depending on the person, sometimes two, 300,000. Okay. Um, you know, we have some more, that um, sounds right from my memory. It, yeah. And the state right. hospitals and some individuals, depending on their acuity, you know, whether they need one-on-one -on -one staffing, whether they're in the, you know, enhanced um, units. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's significantly more. And um, so the question becomes, uh, some of those individuals never see the light of day, right? The, the crimes they have committed are very serious. And for them to discharge, they have to show that they can maintain a, a certain level of safety, even with... And that uh, depends on their commitment, uh, on their on their on their commitment code right that's correct so some people can discharge while under commitment but it's much harder to manage the commit people under commitment in the community um it's difficult to enforce you know commitment rules and even court orders in the community yeah. so you know it's uh, it's interesting some of the people that were discharged depending on their legal status my hands as a discharge planner were kind of tied the, if the person wasn't willing to receive treatment and we had a court order to discharge, oftentimes they discharge to a homeless shelter with, um, hey, here's a address for a local uh, psychiatric urgent care clinic. Go check in when you're discharged. And, you know, I do my best try to set them up with various county resources and case managers. How and many, how many of them followed up with that on their own? A lot of people, uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, we've had those calls where 72 hours after the dis after we discharge an individual, they're already in a psychiatric ward and they're they're uh, a county com in a well a private hospital and they're completely Floridly psychotic, psychotic. Okay. completely psychotic. Because they why why did they get psychotic? Because they got off their medicate they didn't take their medication. Okay, all right, yeah. all right. When people tell you they stop taking their medication, do you do you? 
Is there is there a reason that rises to the top of your head that you remember why they indicated they stopped taking their meds? I think the biggest complaint is side effects. Okay, like what? Uh, you know, a lot of people say it makes them feel like a zombie. There's sexual dysfunction. There's um, just they don't feel like themselves. They're, they don't have passion for their life. They don't have motivation, drive, this kind of. Yeah. I mean, we're a lot of the antipsychotics affect your you know frontal lobe, which is where or the you know kind of so slows the thought process right. down. Right. Um, dope, uh, yeah, um, the the D two receptor gets uh, occupied by the uh, what is it? If my memory serves, the D two receptor gets occupied by the antipsychotic, and so the dopamine can't go in there and cause some sort of effect. And if yeah, okay, we're we're going down a sorry, we're going down a detour. Sorry about that. Yeah. So you know what what's interesting is that the the approach I take on the same individual uh, that's maybe that's. So let's say an individual that gets discharged from a forensic hospital and ends up on the street. I work with a lot of those individuals now, and it's interesting the approach that we take on that same mental illness, whereas in a, in a, in a forensic uh, setting, it would be considered uh, dangerous and getting off the medication. And medication is kind of like the number one thing is you have to stay medication adherent. In the community, I have a lot of people that are that have schizophrenia that are not on their medication and that have experience of being in the state hospital, but it's not a priority for them to get on medication because they they are maintaining a certain level of functioning with a certain level of psychosis. So, so how do they work with their psychosis? Uh, you know, I, <laughs> it's they just they just they're just out there. They're I, living. I, they're... I, I, so I, I'll, I'll share one experience that yeah. a patient uh, had indicated a long time ago that they have conversations with their their psychosis. They hear a voice. They hear audio hallucination, and they will indicate that they they talk kind of talk through it. Mm-hmm. They kind of talk through it with them, and it's usually a negative. It's usually a negative input, and they will what they what it seemed to me they did was they had. A conversation they re-engage their prefrontal cortex and tried to think through what was being said so they got this negative auditory auditory hallucination but they thought is that really what's going on is am I really was am I really a terrible person yeah I don't think so I'm doing this right and this right and this right so I don't think I'm a terrible person I think that that's an erroneous statement and it kind of moved on like that yeah, that's, uh, there's a lot of like strategies uh, CBT for psychosis um, some people are able, you know, you have to have a certain level of insight to do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, for some individuals, the psychosis is just, you know, it's just there. It's not, um, it doesn't lead to any dangerous behavior. Uh, you know, I have one person might have a voice telling him that he he's a professional basketball player and he just goes and plays basketball all day. Yeah, and that's, there's nothing um, illegal about that. Right. Uh, another person... Uh, might have a psychosis that nurses at a local hospital are, um, and this is coming from experience, the uh, are uh, killing patients by forcing or uh, by straight catheter and blowing up their bladders. And, you know, he might research it a little bit, call a local uh, coroner and find out how many of those cases are are happening in specific right. hospitals. Let's get back. But it sure. doesn't That's really lead anywhere. So delusional <laughs> delusional thinking. Yeah, delusional yeah. thoughts, yeah. thinking there might be some witches at their building. But once they that, step over and and do something potentially violent to themselves or somebody else, then it's... Well, and, and we, we assess for that safety uh, before it, it gets there, right? We okay. 
regularly check if they're having, you know, I know commanding hallucinations is one big risk factor. Mm-hmm. If the voices are telling them to do certain when, things, when, what are they telling you to do? Are you thinking about following through on those voices or on those uh, commands? Yeah. Uh, what kind of, well, have you done anything in preparation? You know, have you like picked, uh, went and shop for guns or do you have a plan do you, yeah plan or intent or mm-hmm. kind of look at getting those we're gonna we're kind of let's i want to get back to the question we started we started down it and then we sort of deviated a little bit which is always fun but what the, what's the state of the of, of the of the the social worker in forensic psychiatric care today you started it, this conversation or uh, you started your comments with california bears about 40 percent of the forensic population for the nation mm-hmm. okay so Having said that, we have a disproportionate population to serve. Do you think we're serving it as, as best we can, being just one, one, a wealthy state, grant you, but still just one state, do you think? I don't know. What do you think? I mean, there are services out there. Uh, are we doing our best? I mean, we can always do better, but um, there are certainly services out there. We have a lot of challenges. There's, uh, there's some unique challenges in California that are expensive. We have a lot of- Please uh, explain. We have a lot of gangs. Uh, we have a lot of international criminal activity. Okay. We have a lot of uh, drugs, which, you know, you can say uh, all major cities have drugs and that's true, but we have a lot of it. We have more, <laughs> well, the thing is we have more major cities than other states. That's true, do. and we have, we have big cities. We have big cities, even the yeah. small cities, even small cities like, like one I'm from, it's still, it would still dwarf most of the most of the state capitals in the Midwest, mm-hmm. so it's just it's just a, a different level. Yeah, it is a, it is a different level, and you know I guess uh, are we serving it? The services are there. Okay. Uh, the counties I think are, you know, the, there's the services get administered by mainly state, county, and um, and contracts. So county, state, contracts. So mostly it's. Uh, the state mainly focuses on really high acuity forensic. Uh, you know, we have our probation. You know, this, the state is mostly parole, uh, county probation. When it comes to forensics, um, county has case managers. We have our you know full service partnerships that some of them are partnered or contracted out. What is, wait, 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 what is that? Tell us about that. So there's a there's various names for it. We have there, there's like act model teams. So there, the, the act models, you have a psychiatrist, nurse, uh, mental health professionals working together as a team to, um, to provide a pretty high intensity, uh, community based treatment for an individual. So these people have psychiatrists, nurses, uh, social workers, professionals coming into their homes, uh, multiple times a week. Who pays? Uh, who pays for that? How do, how do we? So do oftentimes it's contracted. Um, and who pays for the contractor? Oh, it's you know block grants. I'm not I'm not as familiar with the okay, the budget, okay, but okay. essentially most of that funding is uh, do, do, federal block grants. Okay, so cool. our tax money cool. get distributed through the county, and the county uh, contracts right, out to right, the right. Um, to, to various. Right, that's uh, good to hear. Our tax dollars at work doing something positive in the community. Yeah. Good. Do you think it's effective? Yeah, I mean, we're doing a good job, I think. Okay, all right, cool. Yeah. The the main thing is, here, here's how here's how I, I gauge it. If the individual wants help, mm-hmm. I can get them help. Okay. Or yeah. I can connect them with services, right? All right. Connect them with so, services. So how effective it is, each individual is different, right? Okay. But but uh, it's 
it's the motivation piece that I think is the most challenging. Well, if I'm having if I'm having auditory or visual hallucinations, it's going to yeah. be really hard for me to be organized enough to be motivated to to make sure that I get to a doctor's appointment. Right? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Is that a fair statement? You think? I think it's a fair statement. Okay. So for some, I mean, I have, I have a lot of I work with a lot of people that are very organized, like actually, like you know, organized on paper, like they have. Have a calendar. They write everything down, but their experience is psychosis. So, yeah. do do are, are people that, that that write everything down and have a calendar? Do, do they have higher success rates than than folks that don't? I would say so, as long as they're motivated. You know, and it, it's a very complex process. It, it depends on their well, insight. It depends that's why on you're here to tell yeah, us about what it. level of functioning they're looking. They're, they they want to uh, accomplish. I mean, a lot of people with schizophrenia have families, have uh, jobs that are successful. Um, you know, balancing that medication where they're still able to perform some of those duties or some of those, not duties, you know, some of those functions and, um, and still, uh, so still function and kind of keep their symptoms at bay. It's a, it's a, it's a delicate, uh, balance. balance. Yeah. Right. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, you talked a little bit earlier about self-determination, balancing the role that uh, that uh, these services have to uh, have to play when they balance um, a, a patient's self-determination and their constitutional rights. Um, um, balance that against care. Mm -hmm. All right. So, do you want to? Do you feel like talking like talking about that? That's kind of sensitive. I don't know. It's we yeah, we're kind of hard. Okay. So how do so how do you <laughs> So how do you balance that? What's what's paint a picture for us? Somebody is, it, let's let's say let's say it's the uh, let's go back to the uh, the example you you cited earlier, person in the wheelchair on on the street on the sidewalk. Obviously been in that wheelchair for a long long amount of time, and they're they've got their their whatever they've been consuming laying around them. Okay, mm -hmm. what? Um, What's what's what is our obligation? What's your obligation to that person as a social worker that's that's going to try and take care of them? And then what are their rights as far as as being able to to pass on services? So you know, so I've worked in um, in that field in two different states, and the case law is very different and goes goes state by state. For okay. the purpose of this, we'll kind of focus on California. Okay, that is a lot more on the side of the person's self determination. And motivation behind that, you know, you can say it's because we just don't want to take care of them, or you know, that we don't. I could you I, you can justify it many different ways, but um, uh, bottom line is that individual. I mean, I'll check in with them, but unless I have evidence that there's a a cognitive or a mental health condition that is leading to this to this uh, deterioration, I will leave them over, leave them out in the street drunk. Okay. Yeah. Because because they. Cause, well, how do you say, hey, let's let's go. Let me go get you some help. So, what, yeah. What, what, what would you even offer that guy? I would absolutely offer what, him what, detox. What, hey, buddy. What, what would can you I offer? get you? Can I get you to detox? Can I help you get to detox? Do you want me to call an ambulance? How are you feeling? Let's. So, 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 how would you? How would you try and? How would you try and and coax them into into agreeing to that? Like, because it's uh, you think it's for their benefit. Yeah, I, the most most reasonable people would think it's for their benefit. So how do you sure. coax them into that? Hey, detox is nice. It's comfortable. We're, I mean, we're we're getting into the addiction territory. And addiction is a whole different game, right? We say you know, addiction depending on the substance. Say half of people with alcohol addiction will end up. It's a terminal, chronic terminal condition. Yeah. Right? So eventually, half of people 
will die of some kind of an alcohol-related medical condition. Sure. Um, uh, with obesity, diabetes, uh, you're more, you know, cirrhosis. Party. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, this level, that level of drinking, where they're, if, oh, oh, if they're yeah. my client, that's a different level of oh, drinking. Like they're they're right. dying of cirrhosis mostly, right. mostly. Right. right. I mean, okay. The um, I shouldn't say. Well, there's lots of different conditions. I mean, you're you're a nurse, you know, more medical conditions well, related. Sure. sure. But um, uh, what was the question? <laughs> Um, the, the question was, if a train leaves Chicago, yes. uh, traveling at 70 miles an I hour, <laughs> no, um, how do you, how do you cope? Uh, how do you, how do you, how do you try and get a patient to go do something? You, the example you cited was detox, um, that would be potentially benefit for beneficial for them that, that they may not want to do necessarily. So, you know, we use motivational interviewing, which is a uh, kind of counseling what does that look like? So, tell, so how, skill. How, let's do some of that. Let's do some of that. Oh man, you're putting me on the spot. Yeah, of course, what if I man. Do it wrong. No, no. So we gauge a person where they're at. Uh, trans theoretical model, I think you call it. Okay. Um, so if, uh, for example, Sam, yeah, you're you're here sitting on the side of the road. I'll, you know, when, when you're when you're drunk, I'll just offer you some detox. Uh, if you're not interested, I'll come back tomorrow. What is what is de morning. what is detox? Is that a, is that a cocktail? Can I drink yes, detox? You want some? I got some right here. No, no. Uh, the so you know I would get you in some kind of a some kind of a setting whether it's dude I'm I'm looped yeah, I'm ER, looped. You want deep? Want me to detox? It's ER or or so what do I have to do to detox? Detox from alcohol is of course very dangerous. Uh, a lot of people you know you can die. You can from die it. from it. Yeah. Uh, so if especially if I know there's a history of seizures or you know whether different withdrawal symptoms. Okay. I would try to get them either to ER. Well, or I don't want to have a seizure. I just want to. I can just drink beer. I'm okay. Right. So that's fine. If that's your choice, uh, that that's okay. But I would, when you're a little bit more sober, I would have a conversation with you. Okay, so the timing say, might be really critical. Yeah. Um, okay. So Sam, you know, I I was over here yesterday, and I just I hate to see you like this. I don't remember you coming to see me yesterday. Were you here? <laughs> yeah. Tell me, tell me what's going on in your life. You know, getting to the root of the problem, getting to a little bit. We, we I don't about have spark. a drink in my hand right now. That's the problem. We, we talked about the spark earlier. You yeah. know that little bit of hope. Well, and, well and you want to let's spark it up, man. Dignity uh, and well, self is that, You were you were trying to talk me into going to detox. I I the problem is I don't have a drink in my hand right now. And now you want to spark it up? That sounds good, man. Let's do that. And that's the kind of conversation I have uh, most okay. of the time. I'm doing my, <laughs> I'm doing my best disorganized guy um, yes. uh, impersonation right now yes. based on um, a composite of millions of conversations I, I, that I've had. And like you said, you know, the, I, I usually get to know, get to know you. You know, so I'll build rapport. Back. Build rapport. I'll build rapport. I'll be over there on that side of the on the side of the sidewalk uh, once, twice a week, chatting, okay. trying to catch you, you know, as sober as possible. Um, try to find out what's going on in your life. What matters to you? Is it is it family? Is it more well, alcohol? Is, I need more. What matters and to me is getting more alcohol. Most of the time it is, and sometimes is it money? Is it do you want to be housed? Do you have medical concerns? Uh, eventually, you know, we talk about rock bottom in terms of um twelve, you know, the twelve step model. The um, rock what rock bottom? You know, people kind of reach this point in their lives where the um they have this moment of enlightenment and. It, they they finally say okay I have to do something about this okay and a lot of motivation comes from that but they, if the guy's living if the guy sometimes is, yeah it never happens yeah I was gonna ask yeah. the guy sitting on the living on the sidewalk 
is that is that going to happen for them? Yeah, it might have happened multiple times in the past. Um, and just got missed. Or maybe didn't get missed, or maybe they tried and okay. relapsed. Oh, okay, and that's fair. Yeah, the um, yeah, it's a it's a tough world out there, but you know we we do our best. Okay, that's good. You do absolutely. You do good. Um, I know that. Uh, you know, maybe we can talk about addiction a little bit later. But I know that the uh, the disease model um, for addiction didn't never did well, and now um, folks are talking about the internal family systems model and having much higher rates of success with that. But we can talk more about that about that later. Uh-huh. I, I think twelve step is great. Uh, you know, there is really isn't. They say. There isn't that much empirical evidence, right? Because it's a anonymous system. It's uh, but they, they've, as far as I know, they've done some, some, they've done some research there, and and it, I don't know. Go ahead. Sorry, sorry. It's true that current, you know, academia is uh, going for more of a harm reduction, or you know, the family systems, but or systems models, but. I don't know. I mean, I see a lot of success. A lot of my guys, I, a lot of the people I work with are um, successful with uh, with a twelve step model. Cool. I, I think the main thing is the support, right? Yeah, sure. They need support. It provides the support for a lot of people. It's uh, it, it gives them some kind of a spiritual and a, and a, a connection. It gives yeah, them a connection, connection and uh, you know they they say. In treatment, they say like spirit to spirit. You know, the spirit and spirit has come from the same. Uh, is it Greek or Latin? I think might might uh, be Latin. I don't know. I don't you, know. You get down. With <laughs> you get down with the Latin. I don't have it like right. that. Right. So, right. Uh, you know, like it, it's a it's a disease of the soul, oftentimes, and the the spiritual connection that the twelve steps offers is is helpful for a lot of people. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that. Yeah, I've heard that the the opposite of addiction is connection. So people are trying to they got this 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 va- this void and they're mm-hmm. they're trying to they're trying to address that void either either numbing out or or whatever and so they that, that's 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 the the symptom that addiction um, is it's addiction is a symptom not not the problem there's an underlying problem mm-hmm. that has to be addressed at some point yeah so, and, I, and I think often connected with some trauma sure absolutely um, let's see. In your opinion, where is the care provided for forensic psychiatric patients weakest, or where is it strongest? And the, this question was for, for forensic psychiatric patients, but but you can talk about the um, the uh, the uh, community um, the uh, community crisis um, patient as well, if you prefer. So there's a lot of focus right now on the forensic patient in the jail. Okay, cool. Let's hear about that. Um, <laughs> And well, uh, you know, oftentimes people end up in jail, and oftentimes they're psychotic, and the the different community, different cities, different you know, everybody kind of has their own perspective, their own policies. At what point do they uh, go to jail? At what point do they should they go to the hospital? Usually, when the crime is committed, they go to jail. Okay. And uh, in jail, you know, now they're staffing uh, social workers. They have uh, usually psychiatrists kind of coming in contractors pers- uh, yeah i don't know if they're contractors or not but they would come in they, they're, they're not a, usually not a full-time psychiatrist but they come in and prescribe some meds there's jail nurses to administer the meds and kind of monitor so they have some you know psychiatric kind of units crisis units okay um and it depends on the jail too right but um 
I think a lot of people are missed, and it's the the horror stories, unfortunately, that we see. But um, there's more and more attention on it. I, I honestly, I don't know the state of current uh, jails. Okay. Okay. But um, the horror stories are still coming out, so <laughs> I think there's some room for improvement. Well, so in so the question was, where is the care that we provide for the the, uh, the psychiatric for the for Forensic psychiatric patient, where is it Where is it weakest and where is it strongest? I like it. Okay. I think it is strongest in a forensic state hospital. In the, a state hospital, okay. I think the care we provide to uh, individuals in a state hospital is great. Highly structured. Very structured. The the recreational therapy, the all the different, you know, you can access more therapy name them and off. different kind of the, name, name them the off. DBTs, the CBTs, the, you know, D- different D- dialect. Okay. So dialectical behavioral therapy. What does that look like? So, you know, that kind of, so there's a lot of different skills that DBT can offer individual that can help them cope with specific uh, distress. So they whether it's some kind of a emotional dysregulation, which is often at the root of a lot of the behavioral uh, problems and uh, psychiatric conditions. So there's a lot of therapy. They can they can they have access to individual therapy. They have a psychiatrist who sees them regularly. You said DBT and then you said something else. There's CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. I mean, we there's okay. all what does that look like? any kind of therapy you can think of. What does that look of. like? We have um, so we use CBT in um, in the we have in anger management okay. and really addressing that um, the behavior and how it relates to the individual's um, emotions and thoughts and uh, kind of the the triangle and how to con- help help them control thoughts, their emotions, behavior actions yeah. by yes by by um, managing their thoughts and kind of being aware of their thoughts and uh, maybe you could flesh this out a little bit because I remember. Um, seeing a uh, uh, a rec therapist teach a class one time, and they, she referred to okay, you've got this thinking, you've got this thinking brain, and you've got this feeling brain, and both of them, both of them contribute to what your actions are. Is that about right? I mean, yeah, I think it, that's from the CBT school. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Cool. All right. So, so it's strongest in the state hospital, highly structured, structured setting, lots of therapy, uh, avenues to pour, to pursue lots of therapy, great, uh, psychiatric supervision, you know, because remember there's a, there's a nursing 24 year or 24 hours a day nursing care. Yeah. There's, there's one of our, uh, there's, I remember one of uh, a senior RN in, in a state hospital setting, um, Use the they the term they used was that the, um, pa- patients are at the state hospital for nursing care. Okay, they can get they can get psychiatric care they uh, in the community. They can go they can go see a psychiatrist, get meds in the community. They can go to therapy treatment programs in the community. But at the hospital, they're there. They get all those other things, but they're there for nursing care. And what is nursing care? Nursing care is the is the continuous little adjustments, modeling behavior that you want to promote. And then the little adjustments and, and prompts that go that, you, that 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 happen throughout the day, um, that are that are tailored to a, a specific patient's um, specific needs. The little tweaks throughout the day. I know that was something that was said. So I thought that was I thought that was valid. Anyways, what were you saying? Absolutely. Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I, I agree. So in a way, like you're, I think you're saying like people get 
a dose of behavioral modification by modeling and by kind of you know adjusting their uh, behavior to more pro-social standard yeah the um so i think uh, yes at that setting i think we're doing a great job the funding is there the um the care is there i think the uh, yeah i think we do a great job i think we could do better or there's some room for improvement with connecting those individuals once they leave okay in the community in, into the community once they go into the community because we do you know do all this planning and we you know the individual might be on board with their discharge plan and have a pretty good crisis plan in place and even have motivation and have you know want get connected with services but the there's no um in between they're in a way they're they're left to their own means to follow through with these services and uh they can there's a lot of room for uh, messing up without supervision okay so this is something that i've always been really curious about and you can fill all this in i'm in a state hospital i am being discharged what 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 does that look like what are, i'm being discharged i'm going to a community setting paint that picture for us so remember, at a state hospital, you've been working with your treatment team for as long as you were there, uh, working on your treatment plan, and we're addressing all your, you know, biopsychosocial needs. Okay. Well, at least the ones you tell us about, <laughs> or we know about <laughs> from your history. And we try to um, gauge where we gauge your discharge plan to your your uh, to who you are. It's an individualized uh, discharge plan. So usually you work with, you, and you work with the whole team, you know, whether it's you're working with the psychiatrist to, you know, determine the best uh, psychiatric cocktail, you're working, you know, with your nurses to, you know, all, all the, the rec therapists trying to figure out how you're going to structure your life, the therapist trying to, you know, figure out what happened. And so it's a interdisciplinary team. Uh, usually a social worker is kind of mainly in charge of coming up with a discharge plan and they use that information to connect you with resources in the community, depending on where you're discharging, uh, the level of uh, resources in the community are different. If you're discharging with a large city like LA, there's uh, lots of resources, the, the, you know, the county, the, um, the contracts, okay. all that. If you're discharging into, what's that little county up, up north, like by Eureka, there's a lot less resources. You might have to drive an hour okay. to see a psychiatrist. Okay, so so let's let's get real specific here. Yeah. I'm going to LA. What do you what do you line up for me? I'm getting discharged to LA. I'm your patient. You're making my discharge plan. What do you got lined up for me? It depends on your unique needs, Sam. Give me some specifics. I might set you up with full partners. Uh, what do you call it? full service partnership? So you got a case management, psychiatry, and some in home services. I think. And is that is that is that something that's offered um, through the public sector or is that public through public the county? Right? Through okay. the county. Okay. So I'll set you up with that, uh, get you an appointment for psychiatry, make sure, so a big thing is to make sure you continue to have medication. So you have an appointment when you're leaving, I get you some kind of a supportive housing. If you're on board, it might be CONRAP. Uh, CONRAP is a state uh, facility that helps you manage, you know, that, that you can discharge to, that can, it kind of a, a halfway house, if you will, but it's very structured and very high, uh, intensity treatment okay yeah gotcha gotcha um highly structured i'm a little bit familiar with with con rep so highly structured um who pays for that 
Conrep is a state facility. Some of them, I think, are state funded, direct, like state operated, but most of them are state contracted. Okay, to private, so private vendors. Private vendors, but okay. the state, yes. And so, what do they do at the Conrep facility? I'm going. To, I'm your patient. Mm -hmm. I'm being discharged to a Conrep facility. Mm -hmm. What's my life going to look like at the Conrep facility? So I will drive you right to that Conrep facility, and it's usually a compound, um, you know, like a basically like an apartment building with area for. Uh, groups. There's uh, social workers. Uh, I think the psychi psychiatrist is mainly contracted, so they're not there all the time. But they come in. There's nursing care. Okay. Uh, and your day is structured similar to what it would have been in a state hospital, but um, little by little, not at first. You're you're uh, re-engaged into the community. The goal is for you to eventually, and this sometimes takes years, to eventually be uh, self. Uh, self-sufficient and have a job okay and uh move out okay cool yeah that sounds pretty positive that sounds Absolutely. like a, a good place to end to like where per, where you want a person to end up okay there you know a lot of um clients lose hope <laughs> i don't know this is an opinion right yeah yeah, it's an yeah, opinion. yeah yeah uh so the challenge is that conrep is while they're in conrep they're still under civil commitment and very high level of supervision and very high expectations uh, a lot of clients get disappointed. A lot of veterans, oh, I'm sorry, the patients get disappointed in the uh, counter-up system because they, when they fail. And it's usually their standards of success at counter-up are very high. Okay. And it's easy to mess up. An uh, individual that might miss their curfew might, and maybe not the first time, maybe the first time, depending on what level of acuity you are, uh, might get sent back to the state hospital. Okay. And it takes a long time to get back on that okay. um, track. Interesting. Interesting. And, and it can be d discouraging yeah. for some, but others right. thrive in those settings. Okay. So, 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 so at Conrep, I'm getting somebody's keeping an eye on me. I have a mm -hmm. curfew. I have a place to sleep. I have food to eat. Lots of rules. Lots of rules. I have I have, I have uh, groups and programs to go to. Mm -hmm. um, I, there's somebody there making sure I get my meds on time. Yes. Okay. Um, and that's all provided there, and then then I get to leave occasionally um, uh, to to go and reengage with the community a little bit, kind of, uh, and, and and just to kind of explore out and see how that goes. And but but it's all it's all heavily observed. Yes. Okay. Okay. Cool. Mm -hmm. If I don't go, if I'm being released and I'm not going to Conrep, what does that look like? And depending on your um, commitment code, you might not have any ties to the forensic. Um, forensic system after you leave okay we might not have any um what what do you are you thinking of a commitment code in particular do you want to say it well like uh, 2972 um the mentally disordered offender once their parole time uh lapses they're really they're not on parole and there's really uh i mean they can they're at their own do they, do they have to go uh, so are they okay so they just go home well, whatever the home looks like for them, yeah. yeah okay. Sometimes those people are discharged to the homeless shelter. Maybe they came from a homeless shelter. Maybe they didn't. You know, you got to remember, oftentimes people in that, once they reach that level of um, care, the families are often burnt out. And sometimes families were never there to begin with. Sure. So it's, sometimes families are the source of their trauma history. That's true, yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, so anyways, I'm not going to Conrep. I'm your patient. You're discharge planning for me. Um, you, 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 you got to flesh this out, man. Where are you sending me? What, at, what I need, I need you to paint a roadmap. You're going to, you're going to LA, right? Sure. 
go with to minimal resources. Yeah. Um, let's say you're not getting set up with full service partnership. Okay. Um, yeah. There's none of you that. might be going to, I think they call it, it's, I think there's a, there's a mission, uh, street. So they have a big homeless shelter. Okay. So I'm right in the, the middle shelter. of the city. You drive me to the homeless shelter or somebody drive, else no, drive well, me? I'll drive you to the train. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. You drive me to the train. So we'll put you on the bus and, uh, we'll make sure you get on the bus. Okay. And then, um, have a nice day. Okay. What, what, what resources do I have in LA? So I, I, you have an appointment for a psychiatry, whether it's where, to where some is it? kind of a, where is it? Uh, whether it's some kind of a contracted psychiatric urgent care. Yeah. Or, uh, or with a county. Okay. Okay. Uh, where, where, that's great. Where is it? So it also depends on whether you're a resident, whether you're a resident of that county before you were, uh, went to the hospital. Let's say you're from LA County. Let's say you qualify for some county services. It might be at the at the county building. Okay. So uh, how far is the, how far is my where I'm living in the mission to the county the county services building? I've never been there. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. If it's far and I and it's it's too far to walk, how do, how does a person get there? So if a person is homeless, there are some resources. Uh, if they're working, they're if they're in a program in a homeless shelter, they might be assigned a case manager and kind of working towards uh, homeless shelter. So homeless shelters have case managers. Some yes. Okay. And uh, they provide bus passes as long as you're working some kind of a program. Okay. Uh, it might be that at your local, and I, I don't know what it is in um, LA. LA. I, okay. I know in uh, San Diego they do. Okay. Um, the uh, sometimes the like the GR where they get their benefits, the county building might have some resources. Okay. You know, it's interesting how when you tell someone in the community that an individual from a forensic state hospital is coming to their neighborhood. Okay. Ears per cup. Okay. So that was that was kind of my um, my strategy. I would call the county wherever they're going, and I would ask to speak with a supervisor. Okay. And when the supervisor usually it takes you know a little bit of a playing game, but that's okay. I have time. When the supervisor finally calls me back, I'd say hello. This is uh, Dimitri from your local uh, maximum security state hospital. <laughs> okay. That forensic good. state hospital. That sounds good. And uh, you know, Mr. Samuel here. Mm-hmm. Is going to be discharged to to your to your doors in one month, and usually that is followed by uh, multiple calls from various levels of uh, county administration and uh, various uh, contractors. And so I kind of try to light a fire a little bit. Okay, good. But good, that's my you. personal strategy, and it's been effective in the past. Good. Uh, okay, that's great to know, man. So <laughs> you you kind of scare people a little bit, like hey, absolutely. Like there's a there's this uh, yeah. Because I'll tell you what the alternative is. The alternative is I call somebody, uh, and I don't know if you've ever dealt with uh, bureaucracy like a DMV. Sure. And it's like yeah, you know, we'll call you in three weeks and see if we can put you on the list, and then maybe four months down the road we might get you an appointment. No, no. I mean, like I, I discharge a Hannibal. You know, I'm discharging Hannibal electors here every single month. Okay, okay. And Hannibal is going to be dropped off at your county. And by the way, you're responsible what's going to happen next. <laughs> okay. <laughs> who do you have that conversation with typically? Usually a supervisor because that's a who supervisor I can get on. what? Supervisor, supervisor of a county agency. So counties are essentially responsible for uh, on that level. Okay. And the counties uh, is where the... An agency they of can what? Con- oh, like a county human services agency, county mental health. County mental uh, health. County mental health. Okay. And um and usually when they hear that they usually escalate it they they, they okay. escalate it and and I, I sometimes I hey let me let me talk to your super let me talk to your boss and then 
their bosses really get alarmed, and that's where the you know the liability. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, really, the, the the reality of the liability starts settling in. Right. And right. the resources suddenly become available. Okay. Okay. What are those? And what are some of those resources that suddenly become available? Well, that's where the person gets discharged. Well the full service partnership and the act team there. They have a nurse coming to their house every other day. They have a supportive housing or some kind of a structured environment where they're getting discharged, whether it's a halfway house. Yeah, it's, it's great. Suddenly things become available. In the community, you would have to really wait. And uh, so in the community to get, for example, an act team, you have to apply and be on the waiting list and, and uh, work with a, uh, you know, work with a case manager for a year and show evidence that whatever is you're doing isn't isn't working and that you need a higher level of care and justify this and this and this. And when uh yeah, when Hannibal Lecter is coming to your door. Okay. <laughs> so you are intentionally trying to scare people you're talking to so that you can get the best level of resources for your for the for your for your for your client that you're working I'm advocating with. for my at, clients. Absolutely. You're advocating for your clients. <laughs> and sometimes in bureaucracies, you have to be creative with how you advocate. Yes. Um, and, and you're working with the resources they have at hand. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so one of those resources is fear. Okay. That's yeah. interesting. And it's been, and it's effective because they get, they get their needs. They get, they get the, the care that they need. Right. All right. Then that's, then that's, that's a win. Absolutely. And, you know, I'll give you an example of a, a gentleman on the other side. So now working in the in the community with homeless people. Okay. I have uh, recently had a discharge from a forensic state hospital, and how that and it kind of a it could have been could have been a real easy miss, which happens a lot. But in this case, this individual qualified for my services. They have a they have a, a kind of a yearly, actually even bi yearly, each state they have a event San Diego they have them all over the place like Minneapolis has it too now do people know about this homeless people do no shit you know people thousands they leave all the shelters they go over there did you ever hear of the of the hobo king and queen that used to be there used to be a subculture of of people that that lived on the rails in this country oh yeah yeah. and and so there's a subculture um, and there's rules, and there's all the stuff people know about, and there's a convention. There used to be a hobo convention nice. out in the middle of the fucking Midwest. I somewhere. tried to be a hobo once. Really? I read, read books about how to hop on trains train. and everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then I read that it, like like nowadays they lock them, and there's like no yeah, air, and people yeah, die in yeah, there all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah you can't, you can't. There's nuts. the boxes. You can't get into the boxes. People, yeah. people that do ride the rails now, they ride on those. Um, on those, the they're basically they're basically holding grain, and there's part of the scaffolding underneath you can lay down on. But it's Crazy. yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. Um, the stand down. Stand down. What? Okay, so that's that's put on by the feds. Yeah. No, I don't know. Actually, let's look it up. Okay, stand down. I'll just do stand down. All right, the stand down. And how many people show up? For Am that? I? Are we on record? Yeah, absolutely. Gosh. It's more, dude. It's much more interesting this way. Okay, so stand down is a is an annual. Uh, event for the homeless people started in San Diego. It's uh, the VVSD, Veteran Village of San Diego, puts it up. I don't know if we want to drop names, but uh, sure. they do a lot of contract work, a lot of great work for the veterans. And uh, so this particular uh, individual from the state hospital was also a veteran. And um, he went to the stand down and he got connected with a case manager. Okay, cool. 
so he went to the tent the we have a here they, they have a tent specifically for veterans and they have a case manager there they, they try to set them up with services with permanent housing so i'll just tell you what happened to that particular okay, let's hear, let's hear. Uh, patient when he dis when he was discharged he did have an appointment psychiatric appointment his medication were adjusted and um he was out in the community they they he went to the uh stand down right away went to the homeless shelter he got a case manager so this is an individual that has been homeless for 26 years damn he's a veteran straight from the navy so did his navy uh tour walked out of the navy and pitched the tent and it's pretty much remained in that tent somewhere around uh, that area for 26 years wow this is the first time he was connected with any kind of services. You're shitting me. Any kind of services. He didn't even know he qualified for any kind of services. So at the standout, he got, he, he got connected, you know, with a, you know, you apply for like SSI, you can get connected with a case manager. So long story short, eight months later, this man is uh, working on getting federal benefits, working on getting SSI. It's like, you know, going back and forth, yeah. SSI takes forever. Sure. He's housed. He's got his first place. He gets uh, general relief. He gets food. He's back to his old neighborhood. Oh, wow. That's great. Living in an apartment. That's great. That is fantastic. Wow. By the way, man with chronic schizophrenia yeah. that lived in a tent for 24 years. Wow. That's huge. Okay. Right? All right. That's that's a win. That's definitely a win. Uh, you know, I mean, if you consider 20... Once they got once he got involved. Yeah. Once he got involved. That's okay, so that's important. And you asked me before what kind of drives me. This 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 is the kind of stuff that drives me. Okay. This is uh this is a story of, of hope to me. And you know, maybe down the road he can share his story with other uh people that are going through some stuff and give them a little spark. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. All right. That that is okay, that's good. I think that's almost like the highlight of the interview, to tell you the truth. That's really good. Um, okay, We're, we've talked. Okay, so we've talked about somebody that was that guy kind of inspired you then. Yeah. It, okay. Uh, um, is there a, are there other patients that you've been inspired by? Are there other clients you've been inspired by? Yes, I'm like inspired every day. No, 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 no. Come on, come on. Think back. Is there anybody that was inspiring to you? What traits did they possess that were like, oh wow, that's really good. You know, one person comes to mind, and uh, it's a young young guy. I it's back when I was uh, working in the acute psychiatry in the, in the psych ward. He had a suicide attempt. It was an eighteen year old kid. After after he tried to come out to his to his father, it's a, it was just a really very touching story. He's such a sweet kid, and his story was so innocent and kind of tragic at the same time. But um, you know, he recovered, and I, I know because. He came back and we kind of, you know, we, he was in the community and we know his story and how it played out. And uh, even though his dad didn't accept him, he did find the su support system that allowed him to uh, live his life and I think be happy. And that was, a, that was, you know, our role in that recovery was, was critical, I think. The, okay. um, yeah, because he was trying to kill himself. Yeah, he had a serious attempt at 18. And Jesus. you know what a what a tragic story for you know what a tragic thing you know for when a, when a kid over something you know silly like that okay and yet you know it happens every day 
So that's that's we've talked about a couple people that inspired you. Um, can you can you think of any any um, anybody that has scared you? One situation comes to mind. Let's hear it. <laughs> you know, uh, I used to I used to work, and this is before my before I became a social worker. I used to work at a, a juvenile detention center. Okay. I don't know if I should get get into this because well, it's really not clinical. But um, well, it's a show of opinions. Being at the Keep it being vague. at the door, uh, waiting for a four cell. You know what a four cell is? No. It's uh, it, when a guy is acting out, and you're gonna open the door and you're gonna force him and pin him in a cell and restrain him. And the thing is, most of the time you're going in blind. You don't know what's gonna happen. This guy was known for hurting people. He was a big guy. He manufactured weapons. He's uh place six people before me in the hospital and here I was at point full body like oh, you know, okay. them anti-stabbing suits yeah okay. ready to go in and they're negotiating with them this is one of the most stressful times of my life okay the negotiation took like 40 some minutes and here I am you have to be on cue ready to go at any moment uh, kind of you know kind of when you talk about your limits and your um you know your own your own psyche and how these situations affect you, this really had an impact on me. I, I learned my limit. I learned that this this was a, definitely my safety limit. I, You don't know what's gonna happen. You don't know if yeah. you're gonna walk out of there with an eye yeah. or with a pencil in your neck. Yeah. And you ha and yet you have to push through it and keep going. Uh, that, that that drew the line for me. That was a scary experience. Okay. Did, did you, were you able to? Oh, they, they negotiated them down. So great, oh, great good, for me. Good, Thank good, you. Good, yes. Good. Didn't even go there, right? Yeah. <laughs> did the, the other people that were standing next to you in that position, did they feel the same way? Did they have similar similar? Yeah, they weren't the first ones in. So I don't know. It's usually the, the guy in the suit that does the pinning that yep. takes the first step. Okay, so that's true. That's, um, was it the six, <laughs> six suit? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that was yeah. a okay, so that scary sounds, moment. Dude, that sounds scary. Okay. Yeah. That sounds scary. Um, we were talking about, about clients that were inspiring to you. Is there anybody that you've worked with, colleague that was inspiring to you? You know, funny you should ask. Actually, I when I my first job was a, was a psych tech in a psychiatric unit, and one of the social workers on the unit was, um, I don't know, I'm not gonna say his name, but he was, he was a great social worker. Okay. When I walked into that unit, you know, the people introduced me, he was kind of a lead social worker there. I thought, I want that guy's job. All right, cool. And when I went to school, I actually called his boss and found out what I need to do to become, to take, to get his job. Yeah, yeah. She told me all the, you know, the type of internships I needed and the kind of schooling I need. And I followed that step by step. When I was done with all my schooling, I applied for a similar position. Didn't get it at first or in that position, in that, in that hospital, wasn't any openings. But six months after I graduated, there was an opening and I applied and I rocked that interview. Bam. And guess whose position I took? His. I took his position. You're kidding. And he trained me into his position. That's awesome. That was a that was a personal what, what, um, achievement. Yeah. Dude, nice. Yeah. Did, did he did he uh was he retiring or what? He was moving to uh like outpatient position. I took his inpatient position. All right, cool. Cool. And um and so that was a goal that I achieved. I'm still so, looking for the next so, so just, mentor. <laughs> for the next step, yeah. you said the next mentor. Yes. Yeah, because we can always learn. We're lifelong Absolutely. learners. Absolutely. I yeah. think that's one of the one of the keys. So hey, just between you, and me, and nobody else. Um, did, you, did you do Did you do as good a job as he did? I think I did better. 
bullshit. Whatever. All right. <laughs> all right. All right. He, you know, he's a he's a great social worker. Okay. Um, I think I, I continue to learn from him. I actually made him, or I asked him to be my my clinical supervisor, and then I paid him money to be my clinical supervisor for a year and a half. So I have a lot to learn from him. I think he's still my kind of a uh, last mentor and. It's still, yeah. All right. He doesn't live in the same state, but I still call him sometimes just to kind of check in and see how he's doing and, um, right on a little guidance, right on. Yeah. Yeah. We all need that. Mm -hmm. That's great. You got that. That's cool. Right. That's a good story. I like that. Okay. Let's shift gears. Can you think uh, of an example of a colleague that, um, did the opposite that scared you? Yes. I, I, I can think of a few colleagues. Okay. Pick one and let's tell us about it. We're talking social work. You know, it, your choice, your choice. It can be, it can be somebody that you work with at that was a social worker. It can be somebody in a different discipline with a different license. Um, you can, you know, it's your choice. Okay. So the question again is, can you think of an example of a colleague that, or somebody you worked with that scared you? Yes. So, you know, in the past I used to be, um, or I used to do instructional, like I used to do education training for uh, for this uh, health system for de-escalations, crisis de-escalation. Okay. And in that role, I had to really be kind of a role model, take lead on all the uh, the physical stabilization, we call it in the forensic world or in the forensic hospitals, physical restraints in the state, in the regular hospitals. So when it comes to power struggling, I think it's one of the oftentimes there's this old school thinking. I'm not even going to get into that. Anyways, this one particular individual uh, gave himself a license. And I call, call, you know, there's all this new psychology about giving yourself a license to do things. Like, are you allowing yourself to hurt people? Are you, do you think you're, um, you know, I, I don't know why. But uh, there was a particular situation and it comes from a series of situations where there was a, a young girl who was acting out and she was uh, physically being violent and spitting at people. And instead of fo- following the protocol for physical stabilization, which in that facility is, you know, you grab an arm, you grab an arm and kind of stabilize them. Uh, minimal physical engagement, try to really, you know, yeah, focus the on the patient's, so, the patient's safety. Sure. Right? So if we're painting a picture, somebody is swinging an arm, somebody, somebody that's, that's floridly psychotic is swinging an arm. You want to stop the arm from swinging so it doesn't yes. hurt anybody. Period. So in this, uh, in this situation, you like painting pictures. This young girl is in a, is in a room. There's a group of, uh, you know, the, the takedown team, whatever, or secu- the, the green alert team is right there at the door and they are. And we're ready to, we're trying to de-escalate the girl because she's yelling, she's screaming, she's jumping around. And usually we we're wait for a safe word, which indicates we go hands-on. This particular individual uh, got really angry for some reason. He didn't get spit on, he didn't get hurt. She didn't actually cross the line of um, being taken down. But he called the takedown and instead of waiting for people to go hands-on, he grabbed her and really picked her up and slammed her on her bed and held her there. Now, when we're painting picture, this individual is a, a larger, kind of a rough guy, big guy, 
grumpy, kind of disheveled. Okay. Sounds like a patient. Looks like a patient. Well, I shouldn't say that. Okay. You know, some okay. patients like <laughs> Okay, okay. It was really inappropriate. He grabbed that girl and in a way he almost like groped her. And, uh, you know, we restrained her to the bed. But afterwards, uh, one of the security officers that was involved was from another hospital. He's like, do you think that was inappropriate? He asked me, like, uh, pulled me to the side. I said, yes, absolutely. So, you, and, so um, you're a mandated reporter. What do you do? Yes, because, well, at, at the time, actually, the guy started arguing with them that, you know, told him the security officer told him to relax. And they started arguing back and forth. Um, so the situation did get escalated. And... Um, Eventually, that person did get walked off, but not not for that. He had another incident with another nurse, who where he was uh, verbally aggressive, and um, that guy kind of scared me. Uh, when he was he, he, later, I saw him going to HR after he got fired. I was on alert. I called security. I'm like, hey, you gotta watch this guy. That's um, okay. It's just you know, the, there's something about him that give you the EBGBs. You, know, you gotta listen to your gut when it comes to your staff and to your and to the patients. That's true. Um, okay. The, in fact, a lot of the a lot of the facilities now have internal or internal kind of employee threat assessment. Yeah. And um, I don't know if uh, the forensic hospitals do, but we're keeping an eye on the staff. Okay. Uh, keeping an extra eye on staff because that's where a lot of those you know the well, it's, it's a, we're, mass shootings come well, from. Well, the other thing is we don't get we don't get credit enough credit for being first responders. We are first responders in those in those crisis situations. Mm-hmm. Okay, just because it's contained behind behind uh, high walls and barbed wire, it's right. you know it's still you're still responding to it, and um and you know that's a that's a high stress environment, and people have problems uh, functioning day in and day out under high stress in a high stress environment. That's a, that's a problem that, that needs to be talked about. Absolutely, and, th- and I think a lot of that is you know having the those healthy boundaries and. We yeah. talked about burnout earlier. Let, let, let me. I'm, I'm going to stop yeah. right there for one second, though. This guy, this guy, yeah. this guy got walked out. Okay, did the system work? He did something he wasn't supposed to. It got reported. I think and you know. It, I consider it a failure, and I'll tell you why. I think the system protected the nurses. They addressed it when it became a workplace violence. Okay. And but they did not address it properly when it was uh, when he showed these warning signs, you know, and, and had poor boundaries with the patient. Patient. So, um, in your opinion? Yes. Okay. All right. Fair enough. All right. That's okay. So thank you for that example of a colleague, somebody you worked with that scared you. Um, sure. say it again. Sorry. What? Nothing. Shrinker says what? <laughs> okay. When you started this job, what'd you imagine you were going to be doing? How's your experience? either mirrored what you expected to be doing or, or been in contrast to what you expected to be doing? Well, like I said earlier, um, I really had this this vision. I, I wanted the guy's job. And uh, past that, my 10-year plan, 10-year goal, was to eventually have go into administration in some kind of a, some kind of a, a state or county mental okay. health system. So I can you know make a little bit of a more broader, you know, macro, uh, level impact. Okay, that's fair. Um, I think since then, my understanding of what that uh, that administrative job looks like has changed, and I think I had a little bit of a more exposure, and it sounds a lot less appealing there than being out there with the uh, you know with the guys and, and doing actually actual act, doing actual yeah help. I get help that. And I get that. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, what surprised you the most about that field when you, when you started working in it? What surprised you the most? 
you know, specifically about the forensic world is how closed off it is from the rest of the world. Um, okay. Things that happen on the inside, even in acute psychiatry, is so isolated. And people there, I mean, it's, they really have a very small voice. For, ex for example? Well, like, um, for example, if care in a... <laughs> Somebody gets hurt at a hospital. Mm -hmm. It uh, it gets handled in the hospital most of the time. Okay, and uh, it just kind of it never sees the light of day. Uh, you even you know you even look at statistics. Like statistically, do we count the uh, violence that happens in the prisons or in state hospitals into the the uh, you know the counting or state violent violent acts or do we you know so in a way we kind of. We don't, these people are, yeah. I, I'm going to say something that runs contrary to that. Just yeah. bear with me. Um, yeah, those, um, it, it would be unfair to treat, um, instances that happen inside, uh, state hospitals and prisons as part of the county setting. Cause the county is a distinct, it's, it's a distinct uh, population and entity. Um, um, I do know for a fact that, that everything that happens, um, in, in these forensic settings we've been discussing get gets documented and reported to the appropriate law enforcement really diligently really diligently oh, that's my perspective so yeah um well yeah you have a different opinion i mean no no i agree with you there's you don't, dude, you don't strong, have to you there's don't definitely have a to. strong protocol there's definitely a strong protocol and i agree no we we do follow the protocol on you know but it's it's an internal protocol, right? Okay, so you'd we're be, you'd reporting be it to our own people, and so you okay, so you think it'd be better if it was reported externally? No, I I, I don't think it, uh, that wasn't my point. My point was that I think there's a different perspective on the broad society, like people, like common folk. Yeah, don't care as much about what happens on the inside of the walls. Oh, that's as oh, they do on the outside. That's of a walls. very fair statement. That's a fair statement, and I think that's what was uh, most disheartening. Because I think, to me, you know, a person is a person, and I see what happened to them, and I don't justify their behavior or their, you know. Um, but it's but 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 with 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 in the light of or looking through the lens of trauma informed care, something has happened to them, and that can that can account for some of the behavior. And when you start figuring that into the equation, it's a little little bit easier to access sympathy, maybe. With some people, yeah. Yeah, with some, with some with people. Some people, yeah. some people you, you hate their crimes. You just do. And, you know, the empathy versus sympathy, right? Like, the, I think that's what really, what helps us survive the... What, yeah, what, did, what was Brene, <laughs> Brene Brown's, uh, the fam her famous quote was uh, that sympathy or empathy is just being with somebody while they experience whatever the negative thing they're going through and just just letting them know that you're there as a presence with them um, you can't you're not trying to offer any comfort because when you try and offer comfort you internalize your perspective and, and then and superimpose your perspective on their situation you know and, and and her thinking was you don't want to do that you just want to be there as a presence um, and that is, is enough to to be a benefit to the person going through the negative experience yeah I think I think you know most of us and there's lots of different opinions on how we should treat various, uh, you know, people, criminal people that commit criminal acts and whatever. But I think most people, common people that are, that don't work in the forensic system, if they read the story of each one of the individuals that are, that we're working with, they would have a different perspective on that individual's experience than just say, Oh, 
this place has, you know, this is an asylum. This is where the, the, you know, criminally insane go. No, yeah, no. everybody gets painted with a very broad brush. Right. Yeah, it's the, the stigma is still out there. Yeah, and uh, and I think most people don't want to hear those stories, and that's why we keep uh, doing what we're doing. Absolutely. Okay. Hey, was there any advice you'd give somebody starting in your field? Somebody new, somebody fresh, starting in your field. In my field? Yeah. Any advice you'd give them? You know, I see a lot of people. Um, I, I I support I support people trying advice. Advice. Do this. Don't do this. Go take this certification. Yeah. Go to a clinical program. Okay. Go to a clinical program because even though you may not think right now that you want to do um, clinical work, I think that license is very valuable. And um, if you're, I think uh, there's different paths to go. You can be, you know, marriage and family therapist. You can do, you can be a LBCC. Uh, but I like, you know, social work. They're all, they all have their different perspectives. I, I recommend social work. There's lots of different, what do you uh, find rewarding about it? Personally, you, what appeals to your personal principles? What do you find? What does Dimitri find rewarding about it? About the social work? Yeah. 10, 10 words. I connect to guys, you know, for me, I don't, there's an old saying that that's already 10 words, 10 words. I don't consider it work. I don't consider what I do work. Cool. Gotcha. I'm going out there. I'm doing, I'm doing my thing. Okay. All right. Why isn't it working? And I get paid for it. It's great. That's awesome. Yeah. It is. That's, that's right. The saying you were looking for, I think, was uh, if you fi- if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. That's right. Okay. Good. How does the work that you do, Dimitri, benefit society? Directly. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. No <laughs> shit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. If, if I if there weren't other people doing what I do, doing what you do, uh, our society would. Uh, have a very different side to it out there in the open and the common folk would have to um, I call them the common folk would have to see it hilarious term (laughs) I'm going to chalk that up to the language the the language barrier (laughs) I'm just kidding kidding. go 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 Uh, intangible benefits what are some tangible benefits from your field what are some intangible benefits you realize from your field what what are some tangible benefits that you've realized from working in your field uh, salary uh, okay. Quality of life, ha- being able to take vacations with family. Yeah, uh, most government jobs have great uh, time off policy. You get eleven holidays or however many plus you know plus your pretty pretty generous PTO. Yeah, find uh, that find, find that in the private sector. Find baby bonding time for a dad in the private sector. Yeah, although I, I see more and more corporations that are kind of beating some of the the big ones. The, the big, big ones, ones are yes, but the big ones. But but that's not the majority of employers in this country. The majority right. of employers are mom and pop shops. Really? Yeah, yeah. The the another uh, tangible uh, benefit. Work there's stability. Once the fund is approved, the funding for your for your position, you're, you're pretty set. Okay, cool. What are unions some, are strong. It's hard to get fired. That's one of the. That's one of the. It's one of the. the yeah, that's that's one thing that the unions <laughs> are strong in, in the in the public sector workforce. Switching gears, what are some intangible benefits? Something like emotional rewards. Uh, I don't know. Intangible. Well, like I said, I'm doing what I love. Okay. Um, I think for me, I get to learn about the other side of uh, of the of the world that most people don't get exposed to. For what does me, that teach you? For me, it's like you know, going back to like Socratic uh, wisdom, right? Mm. Uh, 
it's like reading a book every day. Every story I come across, it, it enlightens me. Enlightens oh. me as an individual. Yeah, you can suss out a little, little bit, a little bit of detail, a little bit more information. Right. Yeah. And each time, it makes me better equipped to to help, to address another person, to help me personally, my own family, that, that to would... teach my kids what's right and wrong. Okay, then you just answered my next question. How has your pro How has your profession changed your private life? And you just answered it. Okay, cool. It, 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 you just said it, it, it gives you information. You have more information to share with your kids, your family. Okay. All right. Yeah, it's maybe like, write a book one day. I don't there know. There you go. Or start a podcast. Um, is there anything outside of this, outside of this field that you'd like to talk about? Anything that, that you do outside of being a, a clinical social worker that informs what you do professionally? Some people, they, they're very spiritual. They talk about their, they talk about, uh, their religious experience. Um, some people um, have um, businesses that they're very passionate about, and, and, and that's sort of an avocation for them. Um, although, well, anyways, um, what is there anything like that that you could describe? You know, I, I always like to push uh, self care, and especially for people that are a little bit newer, um, it's so important to take care of yourself and to really allocate the time to uh, regenerate because it, it can be a very um, stressful. And, absolutely. And, yeah. Absolutely. Like, like any other first responder, we need to r recognize the stressful conditions under which we work so at times and take the necessary steps to make sure that we are operating at a hundred percent. Cause if we, um, can't, if we're not taking care of ourselves, we're not going to be able to take care of other uh, clients, patients, um, at a hundred percent either. And that, yeah. that's, that's, and, and that's going to be negative outcomes or net, net, net negative. Okay. Last question. Ready? I think so. Maybe. Okay, this is this, this is this is this is a little different, but but still but still important. Um, which is better, Star Wars or Star Trek? Dude, I came to this country in '95. I have no interest in either. Really? Not even yeah. Star Wars? Everybody loves Star Wars. Star Wars? Yeah, not yeah. not Star Wars, not Star Trek. No, no, That's no. the first pff, I've gotten from anybody. <laughs> you, people usually have strong opinions about this because, because let me tell you why. Because this is an indicative of how the, 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 the manner in which you see the world, the way in which you see the world. Star Wars describes a metaphysical interpretation of the world, okay? Star Trek has a very mechanistic interpretation of the universe around them, okay? Mm -hmm. That's why. Okay, so you don't give a shit either way. No, I haven't seen it. What do you What do you like? What's, what's some, tell us about a <laughs> Belarusian show that you think is really important for us to... Uh, Man, uh, we had three programs, three channels... I can tell you all the what, uh, cartoons I've seen before they before what, the wall went down. What was that? What, there, there was a big there was a big program that they just brought back to Netflix. It was I think it was Netflix. It was a uh, Comrade Inspector. Com I haven't seen that. I know Masha and the Bear. Masha and the Bear. Okay, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up with that. Uh, thank you, Dimitri Zeligman, a uh, licensed uh, clinical social worker, for being with us today. We appreciate your input and insights. And um, it, it, stay tuned for, for our, our, our very next episode of, of uh, Forensic Psych. Thank Bye, you, Sam. Thank you. Bye. In the shadow of death, I took up. No, 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 give it in Russian. Зачем кассир нажал ты кнопку? Сигнал дал на Петровку. Наряд патрульный вызвал ты зачем? Зачем? Зачем так много шума в просторных залах гума и резонанс общественный? Зачем? Зачем так много шума в просторных залах гума и резонанс общественный? Зачем? Ха-ха-ха!